0: Is this thing on?
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed.
0: And Good evening to the good people of Middle Earth and beyond. Welcome back to the latest in the lecture series, Exploring the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I have the honor to be Lily Rose Prettyfoot, leader of the Rangers of the West, and you have the honor to be, well, you. Rangers of the West Kinship is delighted to host this event with our esteemed visiting scholar, Professor Narnian, from parts way beyond. (laughs) Rangers of the West is a mix of new recruits and veterans with one common goal. Defend Middle-earth from ruffians, orcs, and things too dire to mention in such polite company, while leading the Gladden server in fellowship and fun. We are always recruiting new warriors scholars and caterers to join our merry band of misfits so whether you are new to gladden a returning veteran or just a little curious about exploring this world professor nardian is introducing in this series we welcome you and most of all we welcome him over to you my good law master
1: Thank you very much, Lily Rose. I appreciate the introduction. It is great to be back in Gladden. I'm, I'm very much uh, admiring the very impressive array of kites that are being flown in the lore hall here this evening. Uh, those are some beautiful kites, and uh, 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 it's a, it is a, a very impressive spectacle here this evening. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I am so glad to be back on Gladden and to be returning with you again. To exploring the Lord of the Rings this week. Uh, so, this is our 28th se- session here this evening. Uh, and I believe in our 28th session, we are, we are going to get to chapter seven tonight, probably. Uh, so that's pretty exciting. I say probably the only reason I'm not sure about that because we're only like two or three slides shy of chapter seven. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of really good questions and comments today. So we're not even going to get to the moving forward passages, I think for a little bit, but that's okay. Um, and by the way, I wanted to, uh, to sort of one question that I've gotten a lot that I would just want to kind of wanted to sort of address before we started tonight. One question I've been getting a lot is, "Hey, so does this mean that you're gonna write another book, right?" Because especially with you know with the title and everything, right, exploring the Lord of the Rings, just like my exploring the Hobbit book, uh, you know. So does this mean that I'm gonna be that I'm gonna be writing uh, another uh, uh, exploring book on, on the Lord of the Rings? Well, I don't know, um, but here's the thing. Um, let me answer that question this way. If I were to like the, to, to write an exploring the Lord of the Rings book, you know what I would do? What I would do is I would sit down and I would carefully read through the text paragraph by paragraph, thinking carefully about each sentence, making notes, uh, you know, sort of working out things in the individual, uh, passages, noting patterns and things that I can kind of connect and put together as we go, um, that's kind of how I would proceed. And i do that carefully all the way through this. I'd make, you know, a long set of notes all the way through the whole book. That's where I would start. That that would be st- st- step one of writing uh, that book. And you'll notice that's kind of what we're doing together because this was—this is my thinking, you see— um, Whether I want to write another book or not, I can't right now. I don't have time to do that. There's zero chance that I'm going to be able to carve out the time from all the other things I'm doing to just sit down and do that, to sit down and take those notes and put them together to write that book. But if we do it together, you see, uh, then that enables me to... Do one of the things that uh, that I'm already doing anyway, uh, you know, which is uh, you know engaging in this kind of in this kind of open public class, uh, which is really great and which I really look forward to and love doing, but. Um, then of course it also gives me an opportunity to to do this to go. And it's why i it's one it's one of the reasons you know in my mind why I've been kind of going slower and slower as we go through. And I'm now determined not to skip a paragraph for the entire rest of the book. And that's because this has been really great. So instead of just me sitting down and taking notes and thinking about each uh, paragraph and sentence myself, we're gonna do it together. Uh, and I have been finding that a much more enriching experience than it would have been just me sitting and writing, taking notes by myself. So so what's going to come of it? You know, is is this going to you know, the, uh, the the sort of notes and thoughts and ideas that we put together as we go through the book together? Does that mean that that's going to turn into another book? Maybe. Um, but uh, first of all, I, this whole process is so much fun that that you know like that it this is kind of one of those it's all about the journey thing rather than the destination um but could some project come out of that yeah i think it could and and it kind of occurs to me you know maybe it would be fun just as i'm including all of you guys and, and and you guys are helping me with the uh with the you know the thinking process right the the the, the uh the the initial brainstorming process as we go through i don't know maybe we could do something and you guys could be involved in the writing process also later on i don't know who knows we'll see what happens we got a while before we get to the end of the lord of the rings uh in this and we decide you know uh how we want to you know package this thing up uh but again who knows um i'm op- to i'm uh, open to lots of uh uh to lots of suggestions and thoughts as we get closer to that down the road but Harnuth says, "Think DVD." Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking. I am thinking of different things. I mean, I, I, I honestly do think that if I do another book like that, it's unlikely to be in that form. I'm unlikely, I think, just to to write another book that gets published and sold as a traditional paper book. Um, I'm kind of thinking uh, in different directions. If I did do something like that, I think I would want it to be able to be a little bit more sort of expansive, a little bit more, uh, interactive. Um, who knows? Yeah. Video elements, definitely audio elements. Uh, I don't even know, no idea what it would look like, probably electronic. Uh, but again, we're way we're a ways away, uh, from that, uh, from that decision. We're still in the, the initial reading process. And this is of course where the real meat is where the real fun is anyhow. Uh, so, um, anyway, it's going to be great. Uh, so I'm looking. So I just wanted to, you know, again, I, I get that question a lot, and I wanted to make sure to. to I just wanted to start off by answering that question uh, uh, in a sense here tonight. All right. So let's um, let's let's start off with some of the questions that you guys were asking tonight's session. I'm calling an unexpected welcome because that's showing the confidence that I have that we're actually going to get to. Uh, uh tom Bombadil's house so we'll see about that um but first the questions um okay so tom hillman had a great point this is going back a couple classes thinking about that debate we were having about old man willow is he evil or not and if he is evil why is he surrounded by lush greenness instead of desolation So Tom says a class or two back, we briefly considered how odd it seemed that Old Man Willow was surrounded by such lush growth. When evil in Tolkien's legendarium is usually associated with devastation, destruction, and rottenness, when Sam, affected by the gravity of the Ring, imagines himself Samwise the strong hero of the age, at whose command the Vale of Gorgoroth became a garden of flowers and trees, brought uh, and trees and brought forth fruit. Luckily, his love of his master and his Hobbit sense sober his vision. The one small. Garden of a free gardener was all his need and due. not a garden swollen to a realm, his own hands to use, not the hands of others to command. Swollen is here the critical word, Tom says. It suggests that, however beautiful and green Sam's garden might have been, it would have exceeded its due measure and thus become bad." Remember Shelab, who only desired death for all others, mind and body, and for herself a glut of life, alone, swollen till the mountains could no longer hold her up and the darkness could not contain her. Now, uh, Tom goes on to make an additional point, uh, thinking back to the conversation between Aule and Yuvana in that chapter of the Silmarillion, which is good, and I commend it to you. Um, in uh, you can find it there in the, in the discussion boards in the question for Narnian section. But uh, I, I think uh, uh, Tom, this is a, a this is a, a really great point. Um, and I'm not, you know, in a sense, I'm not sure that swollenness really kind of gets at the essence of what I see going on here with um, with Tom Bombadum. And Tom Bombadil, With Old Man Willow, Tom Bombadil's not swollen. Old Man Willow isn't exactly swollen either, though, I mean, he is personally enormous, um, and his influence is definitely, in a sense, swollen. It's not, it's obviously not like a, a directly sort of Shelob situation, right? Though he is attempting to ingest the hobbits in in some sense, right? Whether he's going to digest them afterwards. He's clearly ingesting them, right? Uh, and taking them into himself. Um, but anyway, he's... he's uh, I don't see him necessarily as like, again, like Sheila feeding on others and, and drawing everything into, you know, it's not that kind of an inward focused, selfish oriented necessarily kind of thing. But I think the broader point, Tom, that you start off making there, the idea of, um, oh, what's the other phrase that you use there? Uh, um, exceeded its due measure, yes, exceeded its due measure um, that seems to me a very interesting way of understanding like what's wrong with old man Willow and why old man Willow is evil without being surrounded by uh, by desolation um because he's not it's not that he's intrinsically evil exactly um but what he 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 and his influence are beyond or exceeding its due measure uh going beyond its place um uh so um so yeah i mean i do think that this is an interesting um uh an, an interesting parallel uh that i mean i, I think I would, I would need to think about it a little bit more i i i think but um but that idea of of due measure I do think is a really important one. And the and the parallel with Sam is interesting. Again, wh- why does Sam reject the garden? What is wrong about making Gorgroth into a garden? Why even, why resist that temptation, right? You know, there are some things like when Boromir is tempted by the ring, what he wants to do, you know, to make himself king and give himself polit- even for good reasons, you know, th- that seems a little more obvious, right? It seems uh, it's a little easier to see through. I mean, maybe not, I mean, it's easy for us to say, right, sitting on the sidelines, right, it might be different if we were the ones experiencing that particular temptation. But anyway, you know, from the outside it's 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 comparatively easy to see what's, what's wrong with that, right? With Sam's temptation, it is kind of less clear. It, In in that sense, it's a a more powerful temptation, right? Uh, Because it seems like it would be a really good thing to turn the Vale of Gorgoroth into a garden. Um, But yes, so I agree that in the description of Sam's Sam's temptation, that word swollen is really, really crucial and does point out that excess of measure. Um, So... um, yeah, uh, Blue Wizard says. Uh, I think it's where evil tends to go wrong: overreaching and overconfidence. Yes, overreaching, exceeding measure. I, I don't think that we can reduce sort of morality in Tolkien to something like an Aristotelian mean. You know, like it's just a, it's it's about moderation. You know, and 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 avoiding excess. It's not exactly like that, but um, I mean, it's more Augustinian than Aristotelian in that sense. But but nevertheless, that that idea of you know when things do. You can have too much of a good thing, right, and when in Tolkien you have too much of a good thing, it tends to become a bad thing um, that I do think is uh, is is something that 's fairly uh, um, that 's fairly stable there um, and Tony, I agree that we do see old man Willow dominating the wills of other trees in a sauron like way, and there again is where I think we can see some of that um, exceeding due measure, right? I mean, because you could say, well, all the time, right? We see, like, one person exerting leadership over other people, right? And that's usually a good thing. And and you notice in Tolkien, there's even like a physical parallel, right? I mean, that is to say, um, it's very often that the person who is the leader of a group of people will tend to be the physically the tallest one there. We see it with Aragorn, we see it with Aemir, we see it uh, with Théoden, even when he stands upright. Um, there's there's correlation between authority and height uh, in Tolkien. It's not a perfect correlation, but there's definitely a correlation. Galadriel is unusually tall. Um, Uh, So um, it doesn't necessarily indicate causality, but there is a correlation there. So the idea of Old Man Willow, right, as the greatest of the trees of the Withywindle Valley and therefore in some sense exerting leadership over them, um, uh, some kind of authority, um, uh, you know, taking the lead and having them follow him. That makes sense. That's, I think, appropriate. But does he exert uh, an inappropriate level of dominance over them? Um, is he, in fact, twisting them to his will, uh, like Sauron and Melkor before him twisted others uh, to, to, to to their wills? I, I think you can—that seems to be an argument that you can definitely make there. Um yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt says it might be worth thinking of Old Man Willow's drawing in of Mary and Pippin as more like the way a tree grows around things than consuming them. Uh, it's what would have happened to them if Old Man Willow could accelerate his growth. That is interesting, though, you know, in that sense, I'm not sure, though, because a tree goes around, grows around something that's, like, in the way, right? Um I guess I would summarize a tree growing around something. That's kind of like long term, a tree ignoring something or sort of disregarding something. So like the chain link fence is there and the tree is growing up around it. Um, and so it's just like growing up despite the fence. Right. And it sort of will like engulf the parts of the fence that are near it or whatever the object happens to be. Um in a sense, that seems to me like the tree going on its way and doing its own thing without regard for the or despite the obstacle that is put near it or or in its way or something, and Mary and Pippin are being drawn to the oak so that it can bring them into itself, so it's not like the willow disregarding them. it has a very particular regard for them um, yeah, yeah um. Okay, anyway, let's, uh, let's keep going. Uh, and I'm always happy, by the way, to, 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 to go back and think through again other you know, passages that we've talked about. You guys, when you make comments on the discussion board, very often uh, uh, have a great way of suggesting things that I didn't think of that we didn't talk about in class before. And I always love to go back and, and kind of revisit those because we, we can, you know, find things that we didn't find uh, at the time. And I love bringing those things in. Um, Okay. Speaking of which, uh, Lincoln wanted to go back and think about Frodo running down the path. But Frodo, without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for, ran along the path crying, help, 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 is the passage that uh, Lincoln is alluding back to. To me, he says, it's always come across, more than anything, like the author decided Frodo needed to run along the path shouting for help, but couldn't think up a reason for him to do so, and so just had him do it. But let's think about it a little. It would be hard to imagine Frodo seriously expecting this to do any good, but the narrator specifically says that he didn't have any clear idea of what it was supposed to accomplish. From Frodo's perspective, he was acting irrationally. I can only think of three possible in-story reasons why he might do so. And Lincoln, I assume you mean in-story instead of meaning like from the author's point of view, right? Because, as you said, the author wants Frodo to call for help, so he makes him call for help. That's not that's an outside-the-story answer, not an inside-the-story answer. Uh, I, that's uh, the distinction I assume you're making there, Lincoln. Okay, so one, he's panicking. Two, he's working under the influence of the ring. Three, he's being influenced by some other power, i.e. Iluvatar or one of the Valar. Um, I agree, Lincoln. And by the way, Lincoln's post is much longer than this, and he goes on and and analyzes all three. Um, And I agree with almost all of your analysis there, Lincoln. Uh, uh, Lincoln immediately dismisses number two, um, saying, you know, this is just like when you look at it, it has very little in common with the way that Frodo acts when he's under the influence of the ring. And I totally agree, Lincoln. I have absolutely no suspicion that the ring has anything to do with Frodo's action there, which leaves me with one in three. He's panicking, or he's being influenced by some other power. Uh, now, Lincoln, you were concerned in your further reasoning, you were, you were concerned that if if Tolkien were... Thinking right, if 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 the answer to the question is is three, right? If the answer to the question is he's being influenced by some other power, Lincoln was suspecting that it would be worded differently, right? I mean, like, you know, something like uh, he was comparing it, for instance, to uh, the outside power that influences Frodo to put the ring on. Yeah, you know, that he has that experience both in the prancing pony and in the uh, um, in the uh, dell at Weathertop so and, and and lincoln was saying and again i agree it doesn't sound like that it doesn't sound like he's you know like suddenly the overwhelming desire to put on the ring came or to 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 run down the path screaming for help came over him right um there's no there's no cue from the text. The text doesn't point us in that direction actively and in anywhere in that sentence. The only thing that the text gives, the only direction that the text gives us in, in reading that is without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for, right? So it is emphasizing Frodo's lack of plan. He does it, but he has no plan. Um, my answer, Lincoln, would be one and three combined. Um, I don't think that this is the intervention, like a direct intervention, in the sense that he is being compelled or even strongly suggested. Like Again, it's not like this idea is just welling up within him uh, exactly. Um, I think what's happening is he's... Okay, well, a couple things here. First, the first thing I would want to do before I even get to what I was just starting to say was, number one... It doesn't do anything. This is, to me, one of the most striking things, Lincoln, about this passage, is that— and especially, Lincoln, when I think about it from the outside point of view, right? Um, like that idea of, you know, Tolkien wanting him to go running down the path and, and, and needing to think up a reason why he did it, right? Or to give him some kind of excuse for doing it. Um, see, there I don't think that's necessarily true. And the reason is, his running down the path accomplishes nothing. Not plot-wise. The plot would have gone on. Tom tells him later on he didn't hear him. So Tom Bombadil's coming along to rescue them. Now, we know that Tolkien does this kind of thing with luck, right? Where someone will do something or something will happen and it will bring about a result which, like, wouldn't have happened if the fluky thing had... I mean, The the Hobbit is full of examples like this, right? So, but that's not this, Right. This isn't one of those luck instances where they were saved by pure luck, right? By 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 chance, if chance you call it, D.M.A. Right? That's not. Um, it's not one of those cases. Tom says he didn't hear them. He he was just coming along the. I was too busy singing. He's going to tell them, right? So, running down the path, screaming, help, 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 or not, it doesn't impact the event. Tom doesn't hear them, at all. So. Tom's coming along and rescuing them is independent of Frodo's running down the path yelling. So, what is, then, the effect of Frodo running down the path and yelling? Um, so this is why Frodo... Um, Frodo's panicking, right? This is why I would say number one is clearly true, right? Because, um, again, it's it's not... in. It, it, from a like plot construction stand uh, standpoint as, as far as it as it seems to me there is no need for it there's no necessity for it at all um so again it's not a uh, um, it's not a situation where we uh, we need to uh, like this this has to happen or else the plot can't move forward so they he's just panicking He's just panicking. But why? Why do this? Um, it's, it's like weird that Frodo does this. And the narrator goes out of his way to draw attention to the fact that it's weird, right? Frodo goes running along the path crying, help, right? And, and, and it is emphasized without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for. Okay, so yes, he's panicking. So what does this passage accomplish? It doesn't accomplish anything, again, from a plot standpoint, but what it does do is it shows us Frodo's desperation, right? Um, This is, um, as, uh, uh, who was it that was, um, yeah, Ethelod was just recalling that line about how he's, you know, he feels desperate, lost, and witless. This shows us the extremity of Frodo's situation, right? The helplessness that Frodo feels, and his impulse, right? When he is desperate, lost, and witless, what's his impulse? His impulse is to run down the path yelling for help, right? Seeking help from somebody, hoping that some... So there are lots of reactions he could have, right? Panic reactions. Um, the panic, the particular reaction he has in his desperation and, and helplessness and witlessness is to run seeking help, Right? And guess what? When he does, help comes. Not because he yelled. Right? Not because he yelled. Independent of his yelling. But it comes. And it comes at the moment that he yelled for help, despite the fact that his yelling didn't. That, to me, is the real kicker in the whole scene. Right. Um, Again, it would be one thing if by coincidence, his random panic shout produced help. It doesn't produce help, but it seems to produce help from his point of view. So in a sense, it's like, I don't know, it comes out almost sounding like a, a lesson for Frodo. Right. On the one hand, when you call out for help, you might get help. Right. Help miraculously came along. But it's not like you'd made it happen. You didn't make it happen. He didn't even hear you calling for help. And yet he came. And he came right when you needed him most and were calling for help. Um, So I. uh, um, (laughs) Ricky Ticky, great name, by the way, says uh, so panic is good sometimes. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Um, I don't think that's the message, that panic is good. Again, I think it's, it's more like, this is, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but it seems to me like a, a really interesting and strange kind of reassurance to Frodo, right? Um, (laughs) there are the two levels of it that I'm trying to sort out. Simplest level, he calls out for help, he receives help, right? Um... That's what happens. And so that would seem to send one particular message. Somebody's listening. Right? And we've gotten that before. When he really needed help, he wasn't even crying out for it then, right? When he was in desperate need, when he was on the brink of disaster before, the closest he's been to disaster uh, prior to this moment with Old Man Willow, was when he was sitting there behind a tree in the darkness and the Black Rider was crawling along the ground sniffing towards him, right? They were seconds away from being made by that Black Rider, right? And at that point, by chance, The elves came wandering in. And what did the elves come wandering in doing? Singing a song about Elbereth and thanking her for hearing them, right? Listening to those who cry out in these lands, right? That's what happened before. Now again, he is in mortal peril for the second time, right? On the brink of disaster. And what is it? He cries out for help, and he receives help. Kind of like what the elves were singing about before. Does that prove that Elbereth is intervening? not necessarily. I don't think it works quite that simply. Um, I don't, it's, yeah, Tony says it's all in Boethius. That's kind of what I was thinking too, Tony, really. Um, this is about Providence, I think. Um, and cause it's the second touch that is the kicker. It, it, it would be simpler actually. Um, the message would be much simpler if Tom heard him. Right. If he called out for help and Tom was like, hey, oh, is somebody calling for help over here? I happen to be here. Right. Then it would be like, hey, look, bingo, answer to prayer. Right. But that's not what happens. It's more complicated than that. When he calls out for help, he gets help. But then later on, he learns he would have gotten help anyway. Right. Um, The help was already skipping and leaping down the path towards him, singing silly songs, even without his calling out and and asking for help, right? Um, so again, it's not about a response to his cry. What he, what that shows is, it was taken care of anyway. You were getting help. Help was on its way. Um, Providence. Um, it's uh, yeah uh alya eru says a piece of uh, of tolkien's reconciliation of predestination and free will in the lord of the rings absolutely yes yes um yeah uh Sharon, Tom is the you catastrophe uh in this in this moment yeah yeah um so yeah yeah actually absolutely i mean i so i i really do think that we are, when we look at this closely and we look at the, all of the factors involved, the only answer I have to what we see there is providence at work. And yet again, it seems like if in the end there is a function, there is a, a result of Frodo's crying out for some reason that he doesn't understand, the answer is for him to learn and to come to understand. Uh, understand what? That you know, Providence has his back, that the Valar have his back. I'm not exactly 100% sure what the message is because you know, to say that you know, don't worry if you're ever in mortal peril, you'll always be rescued in the nick of time, that doesn't seem to be the message exactly. Um, it would certainly be seem to be kind of a dangerous message and and, and uh, 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 an unlikely kind of message. Um, uh, it's not how things always work, uh, in Tolkien, but, um, yeah, uh, anyway. <laughs> Tiber asks, if Old Man Willow had engulfed all of them, would Tom have noticed as he passed by, right, had, had he succeeded, right, if, uh, if Sam hadn't gone after the horses, right, if he hadn't resisted and gone after the horses, had Sam laid down to sleep, Frodo been drowned, and the other two, would Tom have stopped? would Tom have ever even noticed? If we believe his testimony, uh, then, um, yeah. I mean, no, he wouldn't have noticed. Yes, that would have happened. Yes, they would have died. Um, I think so. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Lincoln says that explains the message, but he still doesn't understand how the running makes any sense. The running only makes sense to me as an expression of what's going on in Frodo's mind. And it shows us something about Frodo. Again, like, when the chips are down in this kind of situation, what's Frodo going to do? Right? Um, and I think running along the path crying help, help, help is actually, I would read that as a good sign. I think that's a positive reaction on Frodo's part. Um, I like Sam's—you know—I'll have that tree down if I have to. Not—that's my favorite reaction. But, um, but I think that Frodo's reaction is—he could respond with despair, right? I mean, they just tried; they can't cut the tree down. They have no means. Of cutting the tree down, um, Sam better start start gnawing if he's going to cut it down with his teeth like a beaver. Um, the only option they had was fire, and they they couldn't it didn't work right because if they persisted in that, it was going to kill Mary and Pippin, and they could hear their friends screaming as that was happening. So there there isn't um, uh, there isn't any real chance of them winning. In this situation, Um, he could sit down and give up. You know, he could, like, there are lots of negative reactions he could have. There's not that much they can do. His reaction instead is to run along the path and yell for help. Even, it's irrational, when can I agree? Irrational in the sense that there is no reason for him to believe anyone can hear him. No reason. Okay, the only slim reason is the fact that the path is different from the other paths. That maybe you could look at that path by the river with the wooden bridge, you know, the wood and brush, you know, the, the the dead wood bridges and stuff, as evidence that somebody does build those bridges, and so some maybe humanoid creature lives there in the, you know, in the middle of the forest, and maybe they could hear you, and maybe they could help but that seems like kind of a stretch, actually, because remember everything they know about the Withywindle. Remember what Mary just told them about the Withywindle Valley, right? It is the center from which all the queerness comes. They have no reason at all, based on Hobbit tradition, to believe that anyone benevolent and helpful lives in the Old Forest, is least of all, down in, in the Withywindle Valley, right? So... It, the the only way that it makes that 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 it makes sense as a sort of irrational response is like howsoever unlikely this is the path so I'm going to run along the path asking for help, um, but in the end really it doesn't it doesn't I don't think I don't, I I agree I think it is irrational but again it's what that particular irrational reaction tells us about Frodo and his sort of. Mental, emotional, and spiritual state, I think that that sort of has value there um, yeah, Oakwig says maybe Frodo's appealing to the other trees. I don't know, man. those trees have seemed to be pretty universally hostile so far i i I hard to imagine that Frodo thinks he can talk them over um yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sharon says, you know, she thinks of all the psalms in the Bible that mention crying out, right? Yeah, that crying. And I, I, you know, in in my despair, I cry out to the Lord. Is kind of more like the 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 spirit, I think, of what Frodo is doing there. Does this mean that this is a prayer? Is he speaking to Eluvitar? Is he calling to Elbereth, not by name? Um, uh, and I mean, and I don't think we have much reason to really necessarily think anything so specific as that. But again, the impulse is. To cry out for help, to seek for help, um, and to run, to act, to move, right, like as if he can go and find the help, even though again it's an irrational move. It's this—it's so unlikely to yield results that um, it doesn't really make any sense to do. It doesn't count as a plan, but as a reaction. I think it's a relatively uh, positive reaction. Uh, Do hobbits know of Eru? No, not much. Um, Not much, if any. I mean, maybe Bilbo and Frodo probably have heard of him uh, because of all of the elf lore that uh, Bilbo has gained. Do hobbits in general? No, I don't think there's any reason to suspect uh, that they even know about the one. Um, It's not... The existence of God is not in general knowledge. is not in gen- in general circulation among the peoples of Middle Earth. Um. Yeah, okay. Um. Yeah, Irinda says, of course, you know, he might just be panicking and and fleeing. Um, so it's not really exactly a choice, so much as just as uh, so just an impulse that he gives into. Possibly, but I mean, yeah, um, I, I, that seems like a fair reading to me. Um, but here's why I don't believe that because of again, because of the way the narrator describes it, without any clear idea of why he did so or what he hoped for ran along the path. The implication? he is doing it for a reason. He doesn't really know the reason. He's hoping for something, he doesn't know for what. Right. That is, I don't think this is just mindless. Pe- I'm running away from the willow tree. Right. That would be sensible. That would be even rational in a sense. Right. Um, I can't save my friends. The best I can do is save myself. Right, that would make sense in that sense. Um, but I don't think that this is flight in the fight or flight sense, because although we're told he doesn't know what it's for and he doesn't know what he's hoping for, those two things doing it for a reason and hoping for something are the framework that we're given, even though we're, we're told he doesn't know what they are. Right. Um, so this is why in the end, I do think, um, I do think that I'm, uh, um, I am inclined to read that sort of positively. Um, okay. Let's keep going. All right. Catapulta has a, a, an answer to the weatherwind and feathered starlings line in Tom Bombadil's song. Uh, says, uh, concerning uh, weatherwind and feathered starlings, I like the interpretation that was suggested during last session's uh, reading of Tom Bombadil's song uh, about him talking about his day, naming the things he sees. However, I wonder if there's something else to his mention of lightness. Light goes the weatherwind and the feathered starling, of course, is the line. The idea came to me that maybe, as Tom Bombadil likes to do a lot, he is leaving the sense in which the line is sung somewhat concealed until another line arrives, bearing the lead like he does so often in that, uh, you know, that's the sort of syntactic structure of the, of the, of the sentence, of of, of the, not only just the sentences individually, but the whole sense of it. Um, so I agree with that catapulta. that makes sense. My thought was that maybe he is expressing his hurry as soon as line two. I believe this song shows beautifully the kind of joyous love that Tom has for Goldberry. It is because of how he loves her that he's in a hurry. We know he is, and we know he has the imminent evening on his mind. Evening will follow day, so he cannot tarry there. He is singing about a kind of joyous longing, the kind which merry love calls for, I think. And if that's the case, it could well be that the images of light weather wind and feathered starlings are evoked as an expression of haste. If that is the case, we could understand him as longing to get there with his water lilies, not wanting to wait any longer to see goldberry and- and hopping to her as light as weather wind and starlings. Love this reading catapulta love it absolutely love it um uh, light goes the weather wing and the feathered starlings at least as like a um I'm hopping along as light as the weather wind and the feathered starlings, and that the reason for that is being unfolded throughout. The rest of the verse, right? Um, so that when we get to the end, uh, you know, uh, uh, about him coming home, water lilies bringing and, you know, evening will follow day. He's there finally reviewing the reason why he was talking about the lightness and speed associating himself in his own passage with lightness and speed love that love it love it i think that's a great reading i'm completely convinced and uh tungo i know had an add on there um where he was pointing out that in the uh in the next Uh, chapter, we're going to see Tom as he's going about the room where he's hosting them, uh, he's going to be whistling like a starling. So he's actually compared to a starling in the next sequence there. um, Which does, I agree, Tunkle seem to me very relevant, and does, as you were suggesting, really support uh, Catapulta's reading here. Um, Yeah, good, good. Um, Yeah. Ooh, very good, Matthew. Matthew Hirschenroder points out that Frodo does feel the later save-myself-even-if-I-can't-save-my-friends feeling later on in the Barrows. And Matthew, yes, thinking about how um, there that impulse merely to flight, right, to just running away, um, is very different from what we see here. Um, I totally agree with that. Um, Okay, uh, I see you guys are getting into a, uh, um, are getting into a discussion on Hobbit theology, in which I'm going to, uh, in which I'm going to resist uh, uh, engaging. Or else we'll never get anywhere. Um, that's a discussion we can have another time. Um, okay. Awesome. Great reading, Catapult. I appreciate that. And finally, before we move back on to the text here tonight, um, uh, Steve, we were talking last time about the about uh, how I was accusing Rob Inglis's melody when he sings the Tom Bombadil song of being rather too iambic in its feel and not really fitting the feel of the trochaic lines. And Steve, who was here last week, uh, said he would write a melody for it, and he did, so I want to play it for you guys. Um, uh, I think that he really... he he captures it quite well. So let me, hang on a second. Let me, uh, let me turn down my game sounds here. Oops, that's just not the right thing. Okay, audio, hang on. I turn my game sound off so we don't get that music in the background. All right. Here it is. Help, help, help. Hey, doll.
0: as the wheel the wand, clearer than the water. Oh.
1: huh pretty great so thank you steve for that that was wonderful um i loved i and and i agree you 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 really nailed the the sort of falling uh melody there i think that's that's it's really really good and my favorite part i love how the, the the melody went down really low and got all subterranean in the old man willow part uh that was really really cool um Uh, so uh, anyway, very, very good. Uh, and I love how even in some of the lines, the last syllable, you know, in, in like singing and, uh, uh, was almost, um, sometimes you, you did them as even tones in, in, in the tempo. Right. And sometimes just kind of dropped it in there. That's exactly that kind of trochaic feel. I think that's really great. Um, so yeah, thanks. If you guys want uh, to hear that again or to play that for other people or to link to it, um, uh, Steve posted that on our discussion board so you can find it in the questions for Narnian section. Uh, and it's posted on Vimeo, I think, uh, so you, you should be able to get a link to it from there. Um, really, really great. Thanks, Steve. That was really, uh, that was really fun. Um, okay. All right. With that, we are... Moving on. Let's 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 carry for we're going to totally finish chapter six today. All right. This is the past passage that we ended with last time. I want to I want to read it uh, quickly here um, because I think it's, it's an important setup for the next passage, which we didn't get to. So. Um, okay. Remember, this is just after uh, Tom has left. He's gone down the path ahead of them, uh, calling out to them to follow along behind. And we were talking about how interesting that is, right? You know, I just saved you, and I'm inviting you back to my house where you'll be safe. But I'm not going to escort you there, right? Nah, I'm going to leave you on your own At as night falls in this dark and scary forest. And what we get as soon as Tom Bombadil leaves is... Night falling in the scary forest and the hobbits on their own, right? And that's the emphasis here. After that, the hobbits heard no more. Almost at once, the sun seemed to sink into the trees behind them. They thought of the slanting light of evening glittering on the Brandywine River and the windows of Buckleberry beginning to gleam with hundreds of lights. Great shadows fell across them. Trunks and branches of trees hung dark and threatening over the path. White mists began to rise and curl on the surface of the river and stray about the roots of the trees upon its borders. How sinister the mists sounds out of the very ground at their feet a shadowy steam arose and mingled with the swiftly falling dusk remember the imagery when Frodo was f- the sleep right when uh, old man Willows song was singing right the sleep seemed to come up th- uh, through his through the his feet from the ground right and to fall down upon him from above um, the swiftly falling dusk and the steam arising up is sounding very much like that sleep influence right that sleep spell that old man willow was uh, was 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 laying on them in other words it's kind of sinister right um it became difficult to follow the path and they were very tired their legs seemed leaden strange furtive noises ran among the bushes and reeds on either side of them and if they looked up to the pale sky they caught sight of queer gnarled and knobbly faces that gloomed dark against the twilight and leered down at them from the high bank and the edges of the wood they began to feel that all this country was unreal and that they were stumbling through an ominous dream that led to no awakening um okay yeah awesome so um uh so what do we see right what is the the hostility of the forest right what are the effects of this well there are a couple things that seem to me really important about Pa- thinking about this passage in the big context, right? We talked about some of the details at the end of class last time. But um, what I see here is Tom comes, the old, the will, you know, the trees have been messing with them all day, right? They've been fighting this long and losing at every point battle with the trees, right? Um, trying to na- navigate through and failing, and the trees totally beating them there. Uh, the way the trees were like taunting them on the bald hill, the, um, the Frodo's attempt to sing his song in opposition to them, and 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 being shouted, well, silenced down, which is kind of like being shouted down, but more ominous, and uh, and then he, you know, and then of course Old Man Willow being at the very end of it. Um, but um, anyway, so this has been their experience all day. Tom Bombado comes and rescues them from the tree. What happens if they just if they don't have this experience, right? One thing that, in other words, that we see here, the trees are still hostile. The forest is still scary. In a sense, nothing has changed. They go on and see that you know it's not the case that they never have any doubts. Like, was it was it real? Maybe that whole. Maybe we just imagined the thing with the will. Maybe it was just a dream. Remember the thing with Frodo and Sam, right? Maybe it was just a dream. Maybe this whole. Maybe we. You know we just freaked ourselves out about this whole forest, right? And it turned out, you know, like, I'm sure the trees probably weren't actually, you know, trying to defeat us earlier today. Uh, no, no, they were, right? They still are, right? They're surrounded still by the unmistakable uh, hostility of the trees, right? And they still have to make the choice to walk the path and to carry on through them. Um, if they, um, yeah, yeah, uh, Katriana, I kind of agree. Uh, she says, I see this as uh, Tom leaving them to make their own decision to accept his invitation or not. Um, yeah, they have to proceed under their own power. And he doesn't make it easy for them. He has to pre- they have to proceed on their own power through the hostile trees, despite the, uh, the strange furtive noises, right? They need to have the resolution and the will to continue and to go on right? Um, and and they do. And yeah, Katrana, I agree, it is sort of about free will in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so then look what happens after. Just as they felt their feet slowing down to a standstill because they're tired, because the will of the trees is opposing them again as before, uh, Perhaps, perhaps that is part of it, right? Perhaps it's not just them being all tuckered out, right? That is causing them to... So they're this close to stopping, to giving up. And what would have happened? You know, we were talking about what would have happened had Old Man Willow, you know, ingested them prior to Tom's walking by or skipping by uh, very quickly, right? Like the weather wind and the feathered starling. Um, uh, but here's another question. What would have happened if they'd stopped? If they'd stopped 10 yards earlier, then this next passage begins. Um, would Tom have gone back for them, right? Would they have made, would they have died in the woods? I don't know. You know, I mean, I'd like to think Tom Bombadil probably wouldn't just let them die in the woods. But then again, um, uh, yeah. Um, Omali says he invites them home. He doesn't order them to come. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. And Alga uh, Eru, I agree. Uh, she says, I love how as much as Tolkien loves trees, he vividly presents in this chapter the dark side of trees. Absolutely. Trees can be hostile. Um, like so many things, it's so easy to slip into oversimplifications <clears throat> of Tolkien. Yeah, Tolkien loves trees. And yes, trees are good things. Plants are good things, and beautiful and growing and lovely. Um but it's not as simple as that. Uh, uh, Trees can be hostile. Trees uh, uh, can even, in this kind of a case, be aggressive. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. But just as they felt their feet slowing down to a standstill, they noticed that the ground was gently rising. The water began to murmur. In the darkness, they caught the white glimmer of foam where the river flowed over a short fall then suddenly the trees came to an end and the mists were left behind they stepped out from the forest and found a wide sweep of grass welling up before them the river now small and swift was leaping merrily down to meet them glinting here and there in the light of the stars which were already shining in the sky the grass under their feet was smooth and short as if it had been mown or shaven the eaves of the forest behind were clipped and trim as a hedge The path was now plain before them, well-tended and bordered with stone. It wound up to the top of a grassy knoll, now gray under the pale starry night, and there, still high above them on a further slope, they saw the twinkling lights of a house. Down again the path went, and then up again, up a long, smooth hillside of turf towards the light. Suddenly a wide yellow beam flowed out brightly from a door that was opened. There was Tom Bombadil's house before them, up, down, underhill. Behind it, a steep shoulder of the land lay gray and bare, and beyond that, the dark shapes of the Barrow Downs stalked away into the eastern night. Okay. Um. <laughs> Interesting. Ricky Ticky says Tolkien shows that it's good to love trees, but the trees won't always love you back. Uh, fair enough. Um, uh, fair enough. And Tony, I agree. Uh, Tolkien depicting the darker side of trees. I think is compatible with Tolkien's respect for trees uh, and love for trees in exactly the way you suggest. Tony says he gives trees a choice because he sees them as living beings who are worthy of a choice. Yes, I agree. That is a token of respect. To say that trees can fall is a token of respect in that way. I totally agree. Um, Yeah, anyway. um, Yeah, now let's look first First at the first paragraph here. Um, what turns the tide? They're about to give up and stop. They're, again, being overwhelmed, clearly, by their own fear, by their by the intimidation, by the fact that it's getting dark, right? If not for the fact that they had been invited and told that Tom Bombadil's house wasn't far away, they'd probably give up and, I don't know, just try to pass the night there on the path, right? Um, but, uh... What what do they see? In st- like, what changes? Why do they not come to a standstill? The first change that happens is the ground is gently rising. What's the significance of that? The significance of that is they've been led—ever since they left the Bald Hill, they've been led down, 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 down into the valley, right down to the Withywindle Valley. By going up, they're leaving the Withywindle behind. That seems to be a sense of progress here, Right? Um, actually moving to they but notice they 're following a path again, just like they 've been doing all day. The only difference is that they 've been told this is a good path, which leads to a good place, right so they 're supposed to just follow this path um before they were kind of being suckers in following a path um, now they 're doing the same thing, but under different circumstances um and and it's And it's leading them, right, and we can see notice the emphasis there again at the end behind it. a steep shoulder of the land lay gray and bare, and beyond that, the dark shapes of the barrow downs stalked away into the eastern night, in other words, they're making progress, right. Look, it's the end of the forest. They're actually getting close to the path which they've been following now quite blindly in the dark, right, The path that they've been following is actually, le- before they were trying to, they saw, thought they could see the edge of the forest, and they were trying to get to the edge of the forest, And every, but the path they kept following led them deeper and deeper into the heart of the forest. Now they've been following a path again, and it's getting them there, right? They're not on the edge, they're not outside the forest yet, but this is a clear sign of hope that, yeah, hey, look, there, and, and, and that, that incline shows that. You're not being led down to the Withy Window anymore. You're now being led away from the Withy Window, which is where you want to go, isn't it? Um, Amethorn, I agree. It's the Barrow Downs that they're seeing, and that's not exceptionally promising in and of itself. But still, the point is, it's out of the forest, right? They, they can see they're closer to the edge of the forest. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, but okay, but looking at the description... I agree, Um, you know, D-May was saying she's always surprised at how thoroughly cultivated, how domesticated uh, the area around Tom Bombadil's house is, and I agree, it is not uh... This is not an intuitive response, right? That is to say, if you were to guess, right, what is Tom Bombadil's house going to look like? Um... Would you have guessed that it, it looks like a, a hedge in a, a well-manicured lawn, right? Um, you know, now Mary and I agree. What do we see? We see control, right? Tom is in charge. Um, the grass and the trees do what he wants to do. Does Tom trim back the trees, do you think? Does Tom have a particularly long-handled pair of pruning shears? I mean, notice he doesn't have a hedge, right? Uh, It's uh, where's, where's that uh, passage again uh, mm-hmm. yeah the eaves of the forest behind were clipped and trim as a hedge does that mean that Thomas clipped them with clippers right big old long handled hedge clippers that he uses to trim the tops of the trees around the clearing where his house is Lily Rose says that seems kind of wrong. I agree. I think that seems kind of wrong too. It'd be kind of weird. Matthew Hershenroder says he might have expected yeah, on meeting Tom Bombadil, he might have expected that something that looked a little bit more like Radagast's house in Peter Jackson's Hobbit movie looked like. Yeah, a kind of a ramshackle place all sort of wild and overgrown, right? Um I might have guessed that too. Um but um but no, I, I, I don't think he has hedge clippers either. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Tony says they know the limits to which they can grow. Exactly, Marianne. I, I do think that he exerts his will. He has marked the boundary. This is where I want the clearing around my house to be. And the trees have conformed to that. Tom has sung it and it has come to be I think is how we have to read that. I can't, it's hard for me to imagine it being any other way but notice how conspicuous that is. Exactly. Gallandar says the trees learn their lesson from the high hay and have brought in uh, and have bought into the hedge idea. That's what's so significant about that Galandar right? I mean the fact that the, the trees of the old forest are being compared to a hedge. It's not just they're respecting a hedge and, and refraining from attacking it. They're forming a hedge, right? They're they're volunteering to serve as a hedge, right? That is amazing, right? I mean, compare and contrast, right? The trees on the edge of Buckland and the trees on the edge of Tom's Clearing. It's the same thing. Civilized patch, right? I'm clearing this out. No trees, right? No trees. I want a nice grassy lawn, folks. Thank you. Trees over there, please. This is my lawn, right? Stay off my lawn, right? That's all the bucklanders we're trying to do. take, Dude, trees, stay off our lawn, right? We've got, we've got lawns here. We've got fields. We want these to be a tree-free zone, okay? So we're building a big old hedge to prevent the trees. And the trees take issue with that, right? And, and, and want to, want to, want to encroach. The trees form a hedge. And I mean, again, I just, I, I think that that contrast can't be more stark. They obey him. They obey him. Um... <laughs> Blue Wizard says uh he's sure that if uh Tom was a bachelor it'd be much messier. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. Um um uh, someone is asking who uh who shaves the lawn. I always I, I have to admit I always found that very striking. I think uh I spend um uh, many times in my uh um in my uh, uh, early years sort of imagining, like just kind of rolling that image around in my head, moan or shaven, like shaven, like, can you sh-? because I imagine like scraping a lawn with a razor, right? Which is clearly not the image. Uh, my sense is that it just means cutting it really, really short um, is what that expression means. Like, as I think somebody mentioned earlier, uh, like the, like a, 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 the green, like a putting green uh, on a golf course. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I, I do think that um, what we see is control, right? Even the grass, like, does Tom have a lawnmower? I can't rule it out. Maybe he does have a lawnmower, but I doubt it. I don't think he has a lawnmower any more than he has hedge clippers. As somebody was suggesting that they have a that they uh, they keep goats, <laughs> right? Goats or sheep would keep it down. Uh, the grass pretty pretty uh, pretty pretty low. Uh, Tony says it could be Fatty Wumpkins uh, doing, possibly possibly, um, but um, but I'm not sure. I think it's quite possible that uh, um, that they they just. Uh, the grass just stays short because Tom tells it to stay short. Um, You know, that's, it seems like a thing he would do and it seems like a thing that he could do. Um, Harnuth says he can't imagine Tom asking the local fauna for help in lawn maintenance. Quite possible, right? Quite possible. I mean, I'm sure he'd have plenty of volunteers if he needed somebody to keep his grass short, right? Um, but, uh, But I also do think he could just sing it short, basically, and it would stay short. Um because again uh, independent of the question of how does uh independent of the question of how tom like the, what mechanism Tom uses to cut his grass right uh or to maintain his lawn um it's not the point of this is not to analyze you know bombadillian uh uh lawn maintenance mechanisms. the point is just the fact that he has short grass at all right. And the fact that the trees are tripped or clipped as neatly as a hedge, right, that's not something that we might necessarily... And it shows control, right? It shows um, uh, uh, this kind of this kind of neatness, but it shows artificiality as well, right? It's a, Tom's not just one with the forest. He's not. He controls the forest, at, at least around his house, right? And... Um, and I think that that's... Um, I think that that's interesting. That tells us something about him that we might not have necessarily guessed. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. Oh, and and I love, by the way, the path that they've been following. Now is this neat path um, bordered by white stones, right? It's, it's become a, a, a clearly domestic footpath now. Um, and it's really fun. To get the adventures of pa- I mean, the path has been one of the protagonists, or perhaps antagonists, of Chapter Six, right? You know one of the dominant threads of this entire chapter has been the paths that they've been following through the old forest. And the fact that this path, which seems to have been a path is set up maliciously by trees, right. In order to, uh, in order to, 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 to dominate them, right. In order to, 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 to control them, uh, to trap them, to bring them down to the withy window and to death by old man, willow. Um, that same path, that they've been following, and which they're, you know, they were now following along the Withy Windle, has turned into Tom Bombadil's path, and it's turned in, you know, the the path down to the river, the tree path to the river, led them to Tom Bombadil's path. And Tom Bombadil's path, you know, so now the, the path that they've, that they've been following now ends in this neat little white rock bordered path coming up to Tom Bombadil's house. Um, and that itself is a charming kind of idea as well. Um, Uh, another beautiful little sort of piece of providence and unexpected turn. Um, The path which appears to be leading to disaster, the path which totally was leading to disaster, the path on which which led them to a disaster which was like this close to being complete, um, actually leads, it doesn't lead to Old Man Willow, right? It leads past Old Man Willow, through Old Man Willow in Pippin's case, right? Uh, And to Tom Bombadil's house. Um, so you never know where the road is going to take you, right? You step out of your door, and it can take you, um, it may look like it's taking you to certain death, right? But uh, it may actually be that the apparently certain death is not the end of that particular road. The road that leads past certain death might lead you uh, to um, uh, to Tom Bombadil's house. Um, Yeah, yeah, Brandon was just thinking the same thing about uh, Bilbo's song, absolutely, or Bilbo's teaching about the song, really. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I points out that phrase about the Underhill thing down, up, down Underhill uh, sounds like his song, down along Underhill, shining in the in in the sunlight. Um, yeah, yeah, it does sound like that. I'd like to pause and think about this for a little. Maybe you guys can help me. That sentence, there was Tom Bombadil's house before them, up, down, underhill. What's up with that sentence? I've never gotten that sentence. I want to understand that sentence better. But do you see why I single that out? There's something weird about that sentence, right? I mean, there was, the, there was Tom Bombadil's house before them. Would be a perfectly acceptable sentence all by itself, right? There it is, right? Hooray! Uh, behind it, a steep shoulder of the land lay gray and bare, right? Okay, cool, right, that would be fine. Why does he add up, down, underhill at the end? There's something I don't know what performative in that sentence, if you see what I mean by that. Um, there was Tom Bombadil's house before them. Up, down, underhill. It sounds like a sentence that you'd hear in... A song? A children's book? Uh, um, and I don't mean... I'm not... I mean the phrasing of it. Like, why would you say that that way? Up, down, underhill. That's just a weird way to end a sentence. Up down underhill. Was, uh, there aren't that many sentences like that in the Lord of the Rings, that kind of that kind of constructions. Uh Marianne says that those were Tom's directions. Um yeah. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um so is this like are them recalling Tom's directions? Is that you know there was Tom Bombadil's house before them up down underhill? Uh, meaning they are reflecting on Tom's direction and recognizing that his directions did in fact like their faith in Tom's directing has paid off, right? You know, has, has been proven justified, and they have come across his house just like he said. Um and it is strangely like Frodo's alias Amethorn. We were talking about that a little bit last week. Yeah, absolutely. Which is interesting, right? Um Um. Yeah. I, it's, again, as several of you are talking about, like it sort of it, it describes. Yeah. I. My problem is not with what the sentence is describing. My pro- not that I have a problem exactly, but my my issue is with the style of that sentence. This is a style time point, like like, like Mike Thoroughway would have said in uh, Silmarillion seminar. Um, except, unlike Mike, I don't have a really uh, insightful reading of this sentence. Um, the recollection. Of the memory sounds good, and um, that is that that seems to me to work. Um, uh, up down underhill. I don't know. It is. Perhaps a rickel is, yeah. Galandar says it has a childlike rhythm, like something children would sing. That I keep coming back to that too. That's just what it sounds like to me. But I, I always distrust that, um, Galandar, because you can't prove it, you know. Um, style is really hard to talk about for this reason, anyway, you know. Um, uh, Because sometimes it can remind you of something or sound or feel like something, but it might just be you, right? It might just be an association that you're making because of, like, the books that you've read in your life, you know, and your own likes and dislikes. It doesn't necessarily say anything objective about the text. Um, It's hard. Um, Tony says, it feels like a spell. Yes! Yes. That kind of thing. Um, that's, it's not normal English. That sentence stands out from all of the other sentences uh, around. Um, Did the section change much between the first draft and the final? Eirendus asks. No, it doesn't change that much. Is that line in the original draft... Might be, I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, uh, Tony, I'm coming back to your spell idea and to the observations that several of you are making about the callback to Tom's song. It's in the poem. Yeah. Um. Hop along, my little friends, up the withy windle. Tom's going on ahead, candles for to kindle. Uh. Heed neither root nor bow. Tom goes on before you. Hey, come, merry doll. We'll be waiting for you. Isn't that the whole poem that he says as they're heading out? Um. And yes, Amali, Frodo is already using the Underhill. Alias, yes. Um, yes, okay. I think the answer is somewhere in, is in both of those things. I think that the sentence is definitely calling back to the at least the style of Tom. It's not I don't think it's a, a direct reference. It's not a quotation from Tom's song that I recall. I mean something that he's sung yet. Um uh Yeah. He says down along Underhill. Yes. Yes, Steve, he does. Um But it is, Galandar, an echo of Tom's language. Simple and clear and sing-songy. Yes. Yes. And therefore, also, as Tony suggests, like a spell. Um, reflecting the... sort of... the mystery and the magic of Tom Bombadil. Right? Um, he is... um... Tom is... Tom is waiting for them, right? Tom has told them this would happen, this would happen, and it did, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Galadar says it's not that Tom is deliberately casting a spell, but that the hobbits are falling under it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly the kind of thing that I'm thinking. I, I, I do feel that something has to like that. That's not a sentence that just happens. Like, there's something, there's something weird going on in that in that sentence. Um, Tolkien doesn't use that kind of syntax. That's totally abnormal. Um, but it is like what Tom Bombadil would say, in that sense of, I mean, look at the build up to it. Down again the path went, and then up again, up a long, smooth hillside of turf towards the light. Suddenly a wide yellow beam flowed out brightly from a door that was opened. There was Tom Bombadil's house before them, up, down, underhill. Um, there was the, his house before them, right? And pointing to what, like, the magic, the the music, yeah. Um... Tungle, I am seeing the poem from the Return, but I'm not sure of the context of that. Um, uh is quoting a, a, a poem from the Return of the Shadow from the original version. Where was that? Where did that come, Tungle? Because that's the summoning spell, isn't it? Which is later, not here, is it? Is it? Did it come before this point in the story, originally? That's what I'm. That's what I'm not remembering. What what page in the Return of the Shadow are you on there? Um, uh Tungul. give me a page number and i'll 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 look it up. I believe I still have the thing sitting here next to me in my stack of books that I keep forgetting to put back in my bookcase, uh, except it's under the lot of them. Ugh. my Tolkien books sitting here next to me on the on the desk. okay, turn the shadow uh one twenty three okay, ah, uh, see, I thought it was the summoning spell from later. yes. Up, down, nearer, far, here, there, or yonder, um, yes that's it's the rhyme that Tom Bombadil teaches them to sing uh uh if they're in need of him, yes, okay, that's what I thought, which means it's 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 definitely that that shows this is definitely Bombadilian language, right um, uh, but um it doesn't necessarily. doesn't necessarily show it doesn't suggest that this sentence is a, a recalling or a quotation of the song that kind of thing by the way uh is very common right if 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 there had been a, a line in tom's song in the original drafts which tolkien then took out and it had originally been a quotation tolkien might have left it in like right? that kind of thing does happen um but uh um but yeah, yeah, I, I, I do think that uh, uh, the fact that it happens later certainly does show that um, it's 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 Bombadilian speech, right? Um, yeah, definitely. Okay, sorry, cool. That was my my own question the, thereby delaying us, and here finally we have the end of chapter six. Um, They all hurried forward, hobbits and ponies. Already half their weariness and all their fears had fallen from them. Hey, come, merry doll, rolled out the song to greet them. Hey, come, dairy doll, hop along, my hearties. Hobbits, ponies all, we are fond of parties. Now let the fun begin, let us sing together. So first let's look at Tom's song here, then we'll go on to the accompaniment there. Um... Hey, come, Derry Doll, hop along my hearties. Uh, I love him saying, telling them to hop along, thinking of hopping was how he described his own movement before, right? And so he's encouraging them not only to come along the path to his house, but to do it like he does, right? Um, hey, come, Derry Doll. Hobbits, ponies all. We are fond of parties. And I love the fact that he invites the ponies to the party. Right. Uh, To him, he is not he is uh, uh, Tom is clearly not bringing in uh, uh, four guests to his house. He's bringing nine guests into his house. Right. Um, So that's uh, that's pretty cool. Ricky Ticky can confirm that ponies are also fond of parties. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, uh, Anyway, so that's that's a delightful little sort of glimpse into Tom's point of view, right? Um, Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together. Now let the fun begin. Um, Thinking to what we were just looking at before, right? Why he didn't accompany them, right? Right? You know, one could ask, well, Tom, like, why didn't the fun begin earlier, right? I mean, you saved them from Old Man Willow, and that was cool. But uh, couldn't you have started the fun with a long, you know, couldn't they have been having fun this whole time, maybe? Instead of postponing the fun until they arrive through the scary woods in the dark to your house? Um, But uh, no, you know, we we talked about that. You know, why he did, or sort of the effect of his doing that. And now that they've come. Right Now that they have made their choice to come, they have persevered through the scary forest, uh, sort of relying upon his assurances, and now they've arrived. And now uh, the fun officially starts. And the fun clearly involves letting them sing together. Um, then another clear voice, as young and as ancient as spring, like the song of a glad water flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills, came falling like silver to meet them. What a bunch of similes we have here. Goldberry similes are awesome. Um, her voice is as young and as ancient as spring. What a fantastic simile that is. It is both Young and old. How? Like spring, right? Spring is new and fresh and and, uh, and young as a baby and it's as old as seasons, right? Comes around every year. Um, so I love that, right? I love that. that As young and as ancient as spring. Second simile. Like the song of a glad water flowing down. And that by itself, like this sounds like it's going to be a totally sort of um, normal... Um, uh, a, a sort of a normal simile. Her song, her voice, is like the song of a glad water flowing down, right? So, okay, so it's like a, a remember the the stream that they're going, but it was already called merry, right? It was it was it was flowing down merrily down the hill, right, as they were going up. Um, so the sort of the merriment of a of a of a chattering sp- spring of a lightly splashing water, right, uh. So it sounds—okay, so that's just going to be a, a simile describing the sound of her voice, right? And she's the river daughter's—she's the river daughter, right? She's the river woman's daughter, so of course her voice sounds like a glad water flowing down. But, but, but then the simile gets, gets strange, right? Uh, flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills, right? What does that mean? Flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills. First, what does that mean? And second of all, what does it tell us about Goldberry's voice? Because these similes are supposed to help us imagine Goldberry's voice, right? As young and ancient as spring is, I find very effective. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the the complex idea that that conveys is really is really wonderful. Um, what about the second one? Flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills. Um, Arocheb uh, says, though it's night at present, Goldberry lives in the sunlit days of spring. Um, yes, yeah, so, okay, so the literal denotation, right, of the simile. Because that's what a simile is supposed to do, right? The way a simile works is you have a thing which is complicated, it's abstract, or it's f- unfamiliar, right? Um... I think about old similes. Think about a famous old similes. Think about Homeric similes, right? Uh, Homer was great with his similes. And w- the pattern there, right, is that you take something which you might not have seen before, right? Like the Achaean army charging across the field. You prob- Maybe you personally haven't seen that, right? Or at least not this army under these circumstances. And so he tries to convey to you in terms that are something familiar to you. So he'll compare them to a swarm of bees or something like that, right? Something that you probably have seen at some point. Um, that's the It's the idea of similes. You take something unfamiliar and you compare it to something familiar to give the listener something to hold on to, right? And you say "It's imagine this, it's kind of like that, right? Um, that's how the first one works, right? Spring, right? The youth but the ancientness of spring, it's like that. Okay, so so what's it like? What's the concrete thing that, that her voice is like here? It's like a, a glad water flowing down into the night from a bright morning in the hills. So in the hills, um, so a stream which is glad, but also long, right? So it takes like a day for the water to come from, the, like in the morning, the water emerges up in the hills and it's nighttime by the time it gets down to where it's going in the valley, that's my understanding of that. I mean, they get just not thinking about it, uh, sort of abstractly, not thinking about it symbolically at all. Just think, trying to, what is the literal denotation of this simile, right? Um, so it's a glad water, um, but it's not a short little stream, right? Um, Mike says there's a passage of time in there, and I agree. Um, it's, uh, it's, but there's. There's some length, scope to this water, right? To this, to the stream to which her voice is being compared. Her voice isn't like one single little waterfall. Don't picture a little bit of a brook, right? You've got to picture a stream flowing over miles and miles from high in the hills all the way down into the valley, and it's nighttime by the time the water gets there, right? Right? And the combined merriment, right, the combined gladness, to use the word that he uses here, the combined gladness of all of that water, right, of the entire course of that, that's what her voice sounds like. Um, Not just the song song of any water, not just the song of any glad water, but the song of that, so that that kind of uh, it gives it a time dimension, um, and therefore a kind of significance, a kind of, um, um, I want to say grandiosity, but I don't think that's totally not the right word. Uh, weight, not right either. Um, stature. Yeah, that's what I want. Um, it gives the, the, the sound of the stream a kind of, a a kind of stature to it. Um, you are hearing it over time. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Oakwig says it needs a subsimile to clarify. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, exactly. But, of course, it also does work symbolically, if we think about it on a symbolic level, right? They are in the night, and they're, they've been by Gladwater in the night, you know, for the last little bit of their journey, right? Um, and so it's imagining the vo- her voice coming down to them, but it's like her voice is coming out of a bright morning right her 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 voice isn't a nighttime it's not it, this is not a sound of darkness right this is not a nighttime voice it's not a nocturnal voice this is not a um uh this isn't a voice of darkness this is a voice of light in the darkness like a bright her voice sounds like a bright morning you can hear the bright morning in the hills in her voice even though they are currently surrounded by darkness even though they're in the middle of the night um Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh, interesting, yeah. Sario is thinking, instead of thinking it longitudinally in time, um, he's thinking of it as one single image. Um, Like, at dawn, when the tops of the hills are in morning light, but nighttime is still down in the valley. Um, It emphasizes the same idea, right, Sario? Of flowing from light down into darkness. Yeah. Sort of del- and it's like it's bring it's like the harbinger of light then right, because the light is going to be spreading um, uh and of course it still has that same sense of scope, that same sense of stature, right you're still imagining the whole course of a long stream, not just a particular little water waterfall or something um, yeah, Amamethorne was just thinking a similar a similar kind of thing, yeah, yeah thats that's really cool, okay, anyway, goldberrys song. Now let the song begin, let us sing together Of sun, stars, moon and mist, rain and cloudy weather Light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather Wind on the open hill, bells on the heather Reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water Old Tom Bombadil and the river daughter Now Her song is in Tom Bombadil's meter, right? You can hear it most clearly that you know, uh, um, trochaic heptameter line in Tom's in that last line, right? Old Tom Bombadil and the river daughter is perfect, right? That's 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 a that's a perfect Bombadilian line, right? Um And of course, of course it is, right? It starts with old Tom Bombadil, like so many of of Tom's own lines, right? In Tom's own songs. Um, The rest of the lines don't sound the same. The rhythm is still the same. But... Of sun, stars, moon, and mist, rain and cloudy weather, light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather. The reason for it is the persistence of the... So in lines 3, 4, and 5, we get this pattern of sound. The on the, on the, on the, in the, by the, right? That two-syllable start to the prepositional phrase there that we get in the in, in both halves of the lines and all three of those lines in a row, right? Um, it disrupts the, the basic trochaic pattern. Stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed. Um light on the budding leaf dew on the feather wind on the open hill bells on the heather um i don't it doesn't change the meter fundamentally but it sounds different right tom's lines don't usually do that not that regularly right um as hers as hers are doing there um and it it makes them sound different um yeah yeah um Which I think is interesting. I think that's deliberate. Um, that again, she's she's using tro- uh, Tom's trochaic line, um, but it sounds distinctly different uh, when she's singing of it. And what is she singing of? Right. What do we see? What do we see happening in her verse? Um, he has just said, "Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together." And she says, "Now let the song begin." She's taking up his song, right? Um, taking up. She's taking up his invitation. Um, Fun equals singing together, right? According to Tom, apparently. And she immediately participates in the fun. Now let the song begin. Let us sing together. And she has some suggestions of what they're going to sing, right? Um, Sun, stars, moon and mist, rain and cloudy weather. The thing that strikes me there is the mist in the middle of it, right? Mist has been not their friend, right? Mist has been a bad sign throughout this chapter so far. It's been kind of scary, actually, uh, from the very beginning. Remember, mist featured at the very beginning when they left Qu- Crick Hollow. They could still see that ominous mist um, and... Uh, um, and but now it's just one of the things for them to sing of, right? Like stars and sun and stars and moon and rain and cloudy weather. Um, all those things are good things to be singing about. And I agree. Um, Irindis and Marianne both were just saying that um, uh, her lines sound more flowy, right? Uh, more sort of watery in that sense. Um Yeah. I, I I agree. I think that that is the 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 effect of the sort of regular sound to those lines: light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather, wind on the open hill, bells on the heather. Um. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Oh, Matt, I'd love to see more about that. I'm not sure I can talk about that right now, but I'd love to see more of that um, on the discussion board if you have time for that. Um. Uh. Light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather, wind on the open hill, bells on the heather, reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water, old Tom Bombadil and the river daughter. Um, these are all pairs, right? But they're not accompanying pairs. They're, so, light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather. Neither light nor dew are like a natural part of that. Right, um, uh, a light is something which illuminates and nourishes the budding leaf. Right, uh, the dew is something that will settle on the feather, but it's outside of it. Right, wind on the open hill, bells on the heather. Now, bells are part of the heather, right? Um, at least I think that's what he's talking about there. Um, reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water. Old Tom Bombadil, and the River Daughter. Now, I don't want to... Uh, um, I don't want to go too far into that, right? I, I I don't think we can go through from the beginning and say, okay, Tom is like the first thing, and Goldberry is like the second thing, right? Tom is the light, and she's the leaf. Tom is the dew, and she is the feather. Tom is the wind, and she is the open hill. He, uh, He's the bell, and she's the heather. I, I mean, the parallelism is there. I don't... These don't strike me as deeply parallel things in that way. Um, but, uh, um, reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water. Um, light on the budding leaf oh uh, Molly, that that one's in the uh, direction of the adventures of tom bombadil um i could totally i could totally believe that um yeah so how does this work if it's not exact i don't think it's exactly parallel um i don't uh i mean put really simply these are all things. These are all natural things that you see in the landscape, right? This is like the landscape and the environment interacting. I hate using the word environment. Environment is a totally non-Tolkien word. Um, Some of you may have heard the talk I gave years ago now, goodness, like eight years ago. I gave that talk about Tolkien and the environment um, and how Non, how anti-Tolkienian I think the whole word and so the idea of Tolkien being an environmentalist. I can't imagine he would have liked appreciated that word very much. Um, but uh, I can't help but read those three lines, though, as in, I mean, old Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter flow out of those. They're one of the pairings, right? We get seven pairings of things, which seems significant as well, right? Um, We get a list. How many things do we get in the list? Sun, stars, moon and mist, rain and cloudy weather. Well, six. Seven if you want to include clouds and weather as two separate categories, right? Um, But uh, then we get seven pairings of things culminating in Old Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter, right? Um and I can't help but think of those things together, right? When I think about the like why is she saying these things? Light on the budding leaf, dew on the feather, wind on the open nail. Like, what is this song about? She's saying, Let the song begin, let us sing together. And then she gave a list of things that they might sing about, right? Um, and this presumably is also other stuff that they might sing about. Um, but again, it's not um uh It's not the same. It's not just another list, right? And Old Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter are the culmination of the list of things they might sing about, right? And, you know, who definitely is going to end up singing about Old Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter? Tom Bombadil (laughs) is, right? He sings about little else. Um, But is there a sense of, you know, in singing about Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter, you are also singing a song about Light on the Budding Leaf and Dew on the Feather? wind on the open hill, bells on the heather. Um, that's kind of how it strikes me, you know, that there is something deeply, I don't know, resonant. It fits in the list, right, of things. Um, and the things on the list... Yeah, Tony says it seems like the pairing of the sky and the earth. Um, Yes. Certainly, as you say, Tom, the first three things are like that. Um, Yeah, it doesn't sound like two two things... Bells on the heather is different, right? Unless, Tony, we think of that in the same way, right? Um, The bells... They become like bells when they're waving in the wind, right? The, the um, You know, the bells that grow on the heather, right? Are They become like bells when they sway in the wind, with the wind on the open hill, which just came before them. Um, great question. Bricktails asks, who are the us in line one? Tom and Goldberry, are she inviting the hobbits to join in the singing? Um, yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> Both, I think. Let us sing together. Um, Tom's Let Us Sing Together seems clearly to invite the Hobbits, right? Um, and I suspect that hers is as well. Now let the song begin. Let us sing together. Um, this is not a duet, it's, this, is, this is an invitation. Um, yeah. Emma Thorne says things of nature which are better together. Um, yeah, yeah. I lo- the last two, though. Reeds by the shady pool, lilies on the water. Those are conspicuous pairings, right? Uh, the things that are naturally with the, like with each other, right? Reeds grow by pools, right? Water lilies grow on the water, right? Uh, th- those are those are they're not of the same thing. We still have one thing of earth and one thing of water, right? One is a plant and one is the water. They're not they're not the same thing, but they they are they are they fit together, right? Those things are um you know, something like symbiotic. Um uh closely associated together. And of course, both of them are to be found by the pool where Tom and Goldberry met, right? Um and where she introduced herself to him by pulling him into the water and trying to drown him. So um, yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that, the, the association between Tom Bombadil and the River Daughter is very close in the reeds by the Shady Pool and the lilies on the water, right? Um, and it suggests those are things that fit more together. That's more of a, like, chocolate and peanut butter kind of situation, right? Tom and Goldberry are like reeds in the Shady Pool. They're like water lilies in water, right? Um, Two things that are separate—they're not totally related to each. Other. I mean, they're not—they're not of the same thing, but they're—they're they're partners, right? They're—they're—they're—they're they're, they're, they're connected to each other. Um, uh, but um, and and it's—it's it's a shift, but it kind of grows out of the other images. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting, um. And with that, the hobbits stood upon the threshold, and a golden light was all about them. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> That's the end of chapter. So they emerge into the light. Remember the light, the uh, the uh, the bright morning in the hills, right? It's not morning, but they uh, they emerge out of the darkness into the light. Her her voice was coming out of the light down into the valley, into the darkness, right? So we see that that, there's a a very literal sense in which that simile works, right? Um, And uh, they're standing upon the threshold, the threshold mentioned in Tom's song, and the golden light is all about them. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Tony likes how we get golden light before they're introduced to Goldberry. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And Amethorn, you're absolutely right. The Hobbits are clearly experiencing plus 15 hope. And again, I love the fact that in The Lord of the Rings Online, they try to represent this. This kind of thing is the kind of thing that happens uh, all the time in Tolkien right these moments where they come to tom bombadil's house and already half their weariness and all their fears had fallen from them right they are they were almost they they had almost stopped in their fear and weariness and discouragement right they'd almost just given it up and now half their weariness and all their fears have fallen from them and their spirits are boosted in the, the fact that the lotro people decided we need to represent that in the game mechanics, like hats off, hats off for doing that. Right. And of course the, the converse is always true as, as well. The dread thing, right. When you are in the presence of something powerfully evil, it dampens your spirit and weakens you. Like that's what happens. Right. Um, I just can't get over being impressed at their uh, attempt to, uh, uh, to, to, to incorporate that into game mechanics. Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I was hoping to get into um, Chapter 7, but we've just come to the end of Chapter 6. This is a pretty good place to stop. Uh, we did get through Chapter 6, as I promised today, so that's good. Um, uh, actually, I will end with that last observation, Mike. is a great observation that Goldberry's name and her association with gold, you know, in the golden light seems a little unexpected that silver seems like a more, uh, a more, um, um, watery kind of in her voice. Indeed is falling like silver to meet them, but the light is because she's being associated with golden light. Um, not with silver light, not with white light. Uh, and her name of course is goldberry, not like silverberry or something like that. Um, And, uh, um, uh, yeah, so, um, I think that that's interesting too. Uh, she's associated with light and it's the light of day that she's associated with, uh, here primarily. Remember even Tom's hurrying home because evening will follow day, right? Um, it's like he wanted to get back to her before the evening came. It's not, um. She's not associated with moonlight and starlight peculiarly in that way. Um, she's she's silvery. Her voice is silvery, but she is the first associations we get with her is sunshine, right? She's a merry yellow berio, uh, as we've already been told. So that's that that sets that does set the tone for us initially with her. Um, well, we'll get more. Tune in next week when we re- remember the conversation we had about uh, similes and stuff, keep that in mind for next week, because next week in the first couple paragraphs of chapter seven, we will encounter my favorite simile in the entire Lord of the Rings. My absolute number one favorite simile that Tolkien uses. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm excited. I was hoping to get to that tonight, but that's all right. We didn't get to that. Um, but, um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, so let's. Uh, so let's stop there. We'll. 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 We'll save the best simile My favorite simile in the book for. Uh, for next time. Um, and uh, uh, very good. So thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, it's field trip time, and tonight we're going to go on our field trip uh, back into the old forest. I want to go to Tom Bombadil's house. Now that we've gotten there in the story, we haven't gotten inside and done the whole thing yet, but that's okay. I want to. Uh, I want to go there tonight. So we, I, want to, I want to go back through the old forest uh, and see Old Man Willow and Tom and Goldberry uh, today in our in-game field trip. So I hope those of you in-game will be able to join me for that. I'm going to say goodbye to our Twitter folks who have been following me live on Twitter tonight. Thanks for joining me. Be back next week for another talk. Feel free to jump over to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash SignumU, and you can follow the live stream of our field trip if you're interested in doing that. Thanks! All right, and I will go back to—there we are. All right, thanks, everybody, for joining me here, and we're going we're gonna to head out. So I'm just going to ride over from Bree. Uh, if any of you have a faster mechan, we are going to go from the Buckland side, uh, not uh, 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 from the, the east or the northeast side. Um, we're not going to go through Adso's camp. We're going to go through Buckland. Um, so I'm just going to head out and take a horse from there. Um but you can probably uh you can probably travel um, in if you have you're one of those fancy hunter people with uh, a more direct way you're welcome to take a more direct way but I'm going to enjoy the pleasant countryside here all right. okay yeah exactly uh, uh, Brandon points out that of course our our horses uh, should be there for the party too right you know Tom Bombadil would invite our horses uh, so it's uh, it does make sense to ride to Tom Bombadil's house agreed though I'm frequently getting a uh, Getting dismounted when I try to ride my horse through the old forest. All right, so we're going to head down the East Road there, past the. We just crossed the intersection of the Greenway and the East Road there. Really interesting, by the way, thinking of Enuminus and the uh, uh, Enuminus and Farnost and the, the field trips we've done the last couple times. Um, I uh, was thinking about was thinking about those, and was thinking about the Greenway. Um, in some of the reading we've been doing on uh, the treason of Isengard. Um, so, my in, on Wednesday nights, I'm doing my reading through uh, uh, through uh, uh, fellowship invitation. Well, I don't know if we're forming a fellowship. Tonight, if we're forming up a raid, maybe we will. But let's wait until, cause we might get an official raid there. Ooh, dude, you're level five. Wow.
0: I had kind of done so in say, but I I didn't know if Maven was gonna organize it or not. So. Okay.
1: Yeah, uh, I think I think you can go ahead and do that actually.
0: Okay. If anyone needs to, I've already started taking the horse. But send me a tell. This is Lily Rose. That's right. Uh and I can bring you into fellowship, and we'll get you to where you need to go.
1: Yeah, cool. Cool, yeah, if we got level five people, we're going to need to be rather proactive in the old forest, so... Yes.
0: Yeah, it's better to be in so people
1: can... Yeah. Oh, we lost Maven halfway through her sentence there.
0: Oh. Ah, I should... (laughs) It's good for people, if they get separated, they
1: Right. Map it to find the group again, so that's good. Right. Okay, so, well, hopefully this journey is simple enough, and uh, you should be able to outrun any bad guys that you meet here, like any wolves or bears that you run into on the, on the road to Buckland. Um, so, uh, survival, even for low-level folks, shouldn't be too difficult on this path. Um, but uh, once we get to Buckland, let's meet at Crick Hollow. Uh, the Crick Hollow House, and then we can, uh, we can form up there.
0: We also have Cappies who can summon, so as Great. soon as we get everybody there, we'll start forming up.
1: And here's a wolf sitting rudely in the middle of the road, just lying in wait for low-level people.
0: All right. Send a tell to Lily Rose if you need to uh, be brought into the, uh, into the group. That's right. I better sit, find you, Corey, because I need to bring you into the raid so
1: okay. we can keep yeah. up with you. I am almost to the Brandywine Bridge here. i about to turn in through the Buckland Gate. So we, we can all catch up there at Crick Hollow, I think. All right, there we are, the Buckland Gate. And here through Newbury. I love the look of Brandy Hill from the from a distance. Um, all the windows that you can see twinkling on it uh, in the darkness like this. Uh... One of those, it's just one of those things that I feel like, you know, they've captured a description from the book really well when they can see Brandy Brandy Hall across the river and, and, and see all the lights, uh, you know, as they approach it. I think that's, I, said, I, said, I think they do a great job of that. All right.
0: Okay, I think I've gotten everybody who sent me a tell. If I've missed you, send me another tell and I'll catch you up.
1: Okay. Excellent. So I'm, are you here yet, Lily Rose?
0: I am at the Stable Master, actually. I'm going to send you a tell, Corey, and um, if you can send me a tell, I'll just invite you from there.
1: You're at the Buckland Stable Master? Yes. Okay. Buckland Stable Master. All right. Um, All right. There we go. Okay. <laughs> you know, I just love how the first two people in our fellowship there are a level 115 and a level 5.
0: Okay. Anybody else need invite? And does anybody need a summon? Any Anyone who's uh, going to have a hard time getting through uh, past the uh, little mobs there?
1: All right. Yeah, there's a there's a biggish crowd here congregated outside the gate of Crick Hollow. Uh, Lily Rose, if you wanna come down here there might be people here who
0: Okay, heading your way, Okay, heading your way.
1: Haven't sent you a tell yet. Oh, and your uh sounds like your fellowship audio is on, which is gonna create an echo there with Discord.
0: okay,
1: that should be better. Cool. Very good. All right. So let's say those of us who are in the raid, let's go inside the gate here, inside the hedge. And then those who are not can stay out. And then that way Lily Rose will know who still needs an invitation. So if you're already in, come inside. (laughs) Bernie Kosar of Rohan. Ah, that's a that's a I never really associated Bernie Kosar with Rohan exactly. But okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay, please be patient. I'm trying to get everybody in. Oh,
1: I understand. I know it. I know it takes a little while. Um. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, Among We new... may
0: actually max out this rate. I'm not sure. Wow, cool. Remember, if you if I've if you accepted an invite, please go inside the gate so I I know you're already in there.
1: Yeah, we're um, kind of crowding around Fatty Bulger here. Yeah, there's good old Fredegar Bulger standing in the middle of uh, the throng of us here. Ah, yes, and I see they have made sure to put in a back door here. Because, of course, Fatty Bulger had to have a back door to creep out of Uh in order to escape the Nazgul when they came and beat on his door. That's cool.
0: Okay. We've reached reached max on the raid. I'm sorry. I can't invite anyone else. We are at 24.
1: Okay. Um, Is anyone who is... uh, So are there more that need invites still? Okay, there are more people out here. Well, there are. Um, Let's see. Uh, Level 19. I'm kind of thinking maybe priority of getting some of the really low-level people in. Um, Like, I wonder if maybe...
0: Okay. Any of our level we, cap we, folks? We just Mark. had a level one fifteen volunteer to drop. So yeah, that's what I was thinking. If
1: we've got some Thank level you. cap folks, they could, they could be. Because I mean, they're not going to lose us, and they're not going to be in any danger. But then this way, it'll help us keep track of the, the, uh, the little ones. Ethelada asks. Uh, What's my favorite name? You mean my favorite Lotro name? I think my favorite Lotro...
0: Okay, I think we've got all the littles in. Great. Please let me know if you do not have an invite and you, you need uh, particularly protection. Cool, great.
1: Ethelot, I think my favorite Lotro name uh, is from one of our one of our kinsfolk on the uh, Landreval server. Uh, her name is Symbol Muniel. I really love the uh, the the use of the symbol muna uh, uh, name for the flower and the turning of that into a flower name I think is pretty cool so that's that's my favorite. okay so here we are now we've been we've done a bunch of this before so we're going we're heading out here and we're going through the uh, the gate here we're gonna, we're gonna follow this path. Last time we went wandering off the path once we got to the bonfire glade, This time, we're going to carry on, and we're going to follow something closer to the path of the Hobbits here. So here's the Bonfire Glade, uh, as we were at before. We went down to the right there before. This time, we're going to carry on, and this path is going to take us. And remember, those of you who are on level, please do. We should probably dismount so that people can protect folks. Uh, so, yeah, let's dismount. And people who are higher level, yeah, go ahead and, um, <laughs> go ahead and clear out the fauna here so that we can, uh, we don't have, because they're going to come from all around. The bats are going are gonna, to, bats and spiders and bears and wolves are going to come from everywhere to get at the low-level people. So, all right, so here we are, and the, um, um, the path is winding uphill and bringing us up to the Bald Hill. Hey, I'm helping. Okay. Um, Alright, here's the Bald Hill. Now, they put a tree on top of the Bald Hill. uh, Which I've always thought was kind of weird. Honestly. And a little bit surprising. Like, I didn't quite get... Now, the other thing... You can't quite see, I think we're looking to the east. that's the Barrow downs over there. You can just see it between the trees. I feel like the hill is not quite it's it's not quite as tall. You can't see out very far, like you can't see over the tops of the forest. There's no way that you could see into the withy window Valley from here, but you know I mean um. But you can just make out the Barrow Downs over here, right? So you could be you could be the hobbits looking out and saying, "All oh, right, it's just if we just no, we don't want to go to the Barrow Downs, obviously." But there is an there is evidence of the edge of the forest uh, there too. Um, so uh, so that works. I really like that little piece of that little piece of of view. Um, yeah, the Bald Hill in the game isn't, isn't one of my favorites, is not one of my favorite spots um, because I find, it, I find it disappointing in two ways. Way number one is that, as I said, it's, it feels like not quite tall enough. I want to be able to see over the tops of the trees. I want to be able to see down uh, into the, the, uh, the Withywindle Valley. Uh, and secondly, I don't like the fact that it's a dead end. Like, the path leads you here, Um, but then it doesn't lead out of here. Rather, you've got to go back to the same path that you came up. Um, It's not... The Bald Hill isn't on the path to Tom Bombadil's house. Um, It's all... Emma Thorne points out it's not quite bald. Well, yeah, that's why I'm, I've never been a big fan of this one tree that they put up here. I mean, this one tree doesn't look all that threatening and stuff, but I can't help but feel every time I'm up here like it shouldn't be here. These bushes are okay. I mean, it does kind of take away from the concept of baldness as applied to this hill. It seems to have, you know, some uh, 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 sort of a crew cut here, the hill, rather than um, being truly bald. But... um, um. Yeah, it's more like a stubble hill, exactly, Lily Rose. Um, so yeah, so but but again, my biggest disappointment is the path that we can't continue and follow the path on. I would love to be able to follow in the exact footsteps, but as you can see from the sort of cheating map that we have here, um, the path to Bald Hill is basically a dead end. You can't you can't get out of it and down to the Withy Windle that way, uh, which um, as I as, as I say, I find uh, a bit of a disappointment. So let's go, but at least, you know, we do have the experience of being led on a path into what seems like a, like, you know, like a very good and clear direction and then having it lead you nowhere. Um, like, that's kind of cool, right? I mean, that, 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 that works. Um, but, um, yeah, oh yeah, and Pontine, you're right, the bushes didn't used to be there. Um, uh, these bushes are part of the, the cosmetic, um, uh, brush-up that the area had in recent years. Um, yeah, the updates to the old forest, exactly. Uh, in Heria, which is a good name, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that being balder, too. I, my memory of the game doesn't go back that far. I'm not an old-timer like many of you guys are, but, uh, but I have been playing for several years, and I do remember the, the cosmetic upgrade that the old lands received. So we're going to go back. Here, I'm cheating again, uh, using the map here. We're going to go back, and then we're going to go down to the Withy Window. Right, so we can't cut through this way, can we? Yeah. Yeah, I do want to cut through this way. Hey, look, it's another path. I'm sure this path leads just where we want to go. and they do have you know these paths that sort of that you find here that go through the old, um notice that they had been careful to put paths and maintain that well somebody just leveled up how about that um uh they they do put, and, but, and but then look the path just petered out and died you know it just kind of dumps us here at old muddyfoot's hill right uh which is kind of cool okay yeah i know where i am oh i know old muddyfoot's hill and the poor, diseased bears, yeah. Yeah, he's seen better days. And the wolves. Okay. Anyway, so, we have we have no choice but to follow this because it's the only path through the trees, and it leads us down to the Withy Window. Here we are. And there's a dude down here. This is a totally non-canonical uh, hobbit, uh who needs your help right uh brandy buck the brandy bucks do come in here at times, right we're told, and so they've taken the liberty of putting a brandy buck uh into uh uh the old forest and he gives you some of the quests that you get in this region um, but we've come down to the withy window, and indeed we have lots of willow trees as you see by the by the river right the river is lined with with willow trees, not quite on both sides, and we have lots and lots of willow leaves floating on the water, right? Just like it's described. So that's that's cool. Um, let's uh, have, can we follow the withy window all the way from here? No, we've got a big old rock cliff. We need to go around here. Yeah, here we go. That's right. We got to go up this way. Up the withy window. So let's follow the withy window. <laughs> hey, Druids Fire, that was you that leveled up? Very good. Level 20, huh? Impressive. Okay. Oh, the abandoned cottage. Yes, uh, uh, an important point in one of the most uh, emotionally moving quest lines of Buckland in the Old Forest. Um, there's a poor Hobbit here, standing next to a dead body. Um, no spoilers, but anyway, the abandoned cottage is interesting. I don't understand it. I have to say, it looks like it was burned down or something. Um, I don't know why they put an abandoned cottage in the old forest. Um, I mean, it looks clearly like this thing burned down. But why is there a burned down cottage in the old forest? Um, I don't know. I have to say, I've never understood this cottage. I don't know... Because I, I keep asking for a reason. I mean, it's like a quest point, but it doesn't have to be there. And I've never known the Lotro folks to do things, like, randomly. You know, they don't do things randomly. They don't... Um, uh, They don't just put random stuff in for no reason. There's almost always some kind of book justification for it, Some something, even if it's only like a, a, a line or a phrase which alludes to it or permits it or invites it or something like that. Um, I, but I can't think of any rationale for the abandoned cottage. It's never made any sense to me. Who would have built it? and why. The idea that somebody at some point in the distant past might have built a cottage in the old forest doesn't seem to me impossible. But I can't think of anything in the text that even that alludes to such a thing in even the obscurest way, as the Hobbit narrator would say. Um, so yeah, I don't understand. I don't, I don't understand how this fits in with the storyline, and it it bothers me, it bothers me. Not in the sense of like I disapprove of it. It bothers me, but it it troubles me because again, usually I can think of an explanation for things. Usually it 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 fits and makes sense and is is tied to the book in some way. Um, uh, but yeah, so oh, Ethelod, what are you quoting there? Um, something that the brandy buck dude says, Gilliman or whatever his name was. Um, yeah, I don't. Anyway, so I don't know. Um, I I can't I can't explain the abandoned cottage. But I think we're getting close. Everybody's favorite willow tree. If you're low level, you'll want to be careful. Because Old Man Willow is dangerous. And again, I love the way that they've interpreted Old Man Willow. Okay, alright, we're getting closer to him. Ah, there he is. Okay, now let's stop and look at him here from a distance. Um, Seeing nothing but reeds. There we go. Okay. Uh, So yeah, don't get right under him, because he will... um, I was surprised, because the first time I went to the old forest in the game, you know, I'd been attacked by trees and roots coming out of the ground. Um, uh, Yes, baleful willow roots. There are baleful willow roots here. Um, and, um, anyway, I was, uh, expecting him to attack me, like, physically beat on me. Um, but he doesn't physically beat on you. What he does, as you see, as I approach here, uh, see, I've turned all green, right? And, uh uh-oh, we lost one. Look, he's in, hello! He was being eaten by the willow! I got out. That's good. So, I'm turning green, and what's happening, if you can see, my power is being drained. Um, Now, I'm restoring it back, because I'm high level, but um, those of you who are low level, as you can see, your power shrinks down almost to nothing. um, Which I really like, right? What they're what they're doing, right? What they're, um, uh, emuating, right, is that the, the direct attack upon the will, uh, the, uh, the, 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 you know, old man Willow is singing of, 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 of sleep, right? He's singing of water and sleep right now, uh, and it just kind of dampens you. Even I am losing power in net, right? Um, yeah, so it's a totally non uh, non-conventional attack. Um, another thing I I've never really noticed about him before because I don't think I've ever looked at him carefully from this angle. Notice fr- from out here, from from the distance, the gnarling of his trunk looks kind of like a face, right? Looks kind of like a an old wrinkly face with a, a big old wrinkly nose there in the middle and. Uh, and his eyes kind of squinted, closed. But then as you come nearer, it looks less like a face. Like, no, no, it's just a big old big old knot in the tree. Oh, somebody's lit a fire. Now that's not, he is not going to approve at all, right? Um, so let's see. Do we have roots coming down? Well, see, here's a, one of those uh, one of those baleful roots, right? That attacks you. Um, And they have those roots that attack you all along the edge by the water. They don't show his roots coming down into the river. Um, But there are, along the edges of the river, roots that attack you and attempt to kill you. Uh, So there's that. But look, we have lilies floating on on the water here. Right under the Willow Man. okay let's let's follow let's keep going upstream here. Now we get a path with a stone bridge, right? a little bit more dramatic than was described. So here it's another path goes off into the trees, but the bridge, is that clear indication of okay? No, this is a this is a human path. It's not like the paths that we got uh, that we got before. And then as we go here's a waterfall, rather large and impressive waterfall. Not a, exactly just a, a merry stream rippling down the hill. But as we go up we get up White stones? There we are. White stones bordering the path. Yeah, there they are. And am I going the wrong way now? Did I take a wrong turning? I think I did, didn't I? We gone too far? I actually. No, that was the wrong turning. I think we're right, right? Yeah.
0: You it when you should have zagged. We need to go to the right.
1: Okay. All right. I thought so. So let's see. Yeah. So I'll follow you, Lily Rose. I get lost here ever since we uh ever since they did the cosmetic upgrade. Yeah, of course, there it is, right. I zigged when I should have zagged. right? Okay, so there are the rocks, and I went up that way, right. We should have turned down here. Got it. Okay, I did the up, but I didn't do the down under hill, right? You have to go up, and then down the hill, and then the house is on the further hill. Yeah, see, actually, that is like it's... The terrain is like it's described. Though, when they put all these bushes in they made, this used to be more like a mown more like mown grass and they put all these bushes in so that it's not like mown grass anymore i mean the bushes are cool and they're an upgrade but i don't think this is tom bombadil needs to in game needs to improve his lawn maintenance i got to tell ya and there's the house of tom bombadil with the golden light shining out of the door like the view of the waterfall. Alright. And the pools of water down here with water lilies in. And we're growing plants. These are beans, I believe. What are they growing over here? Got little gardens. Right. Now these stone... It's just flowers or the herbs? Flowers, I think. Um, these, uh, you know, sort of stone beds that their plants and vegetables are in are not exactly described in the game, but don't seem inappropriate either. We don't hear much being made of stone um, around the house, but. But again, we know it's a. Place, it's not just a natural. Again, if if you're if you're sort of picturing that it this is, if this looks too artificial, remember, artificiality was, what it was about. Remember the trees like a hedge and, um. Uh, and the grass all mown. If anything, again, it's the lawn is too wild. And then here, just as I was hoping to find. Rows of beans on poles. First thing I looked for the first time I came to Tom Bombadil's house. Do they have rows of beans on poles in the back? And they do. I like Tom's little outdoor oven here. Though why there are flowers growing in it, I can't understand. You've got to think it'd be pretty warm in there. Anyway. Let's go into the house and meet Tom Bombadil. He's not out, is he? He's in? Is he in by day, but out by night? Or is he only out when he has the particular... I know he's outside skipping around when you're on the Epic Quest line uh, in Volume 1. But... uh, It's during... It's a daytime thing? Okay. I thought it might be... Linked to time of day. What time is it in game now? Oh, it's the four dawn. Sweet. So it's going to be dawn soon. So maybe before we get to the end, we'll uh, we'll 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 see day coming. So okay. So here we are now. The, now at the fun begin, and we haven't brought any of our ponies in with us. But we're not supposed to bring them inside the house. They're part of the party. But you know. Okay. Oh, and of course here I've turned off my game sounds from before, which is a shame here. Okay. Why is my sound effects volume up to like ridiculous heights? Okay. Alright, better. Okay. I'm not getting the music, though. Did I turn off the music? No, I didn't. What happened to the Tom Bombadil music? Why am I not hearing it?
0: I don't
1: know, because I am. Weird. Hang on. I'll come in again. Maybe it's just, I don't know, because I had the sound off when I came in. I don't know. Weird. Okay, now I'm hearing something. Let's see. I'll go back in. There we go. Now I'm hearing his music. Okay. Yes. There's always this merry music going on in Tom's house. Which is just how it should be. Okay, good. Oh, he's going to leave the dancing. He always skips from one place to another. White bread and yellow cream. Uh, Again, they doesn't, uh... They don't, as always, they resist in the game dialogue quoting the book exactly because they're a little nervous about the text copyrights even though they have the rights to talk about all the stuff. Uh, And they they always err on the side of caution. Um, But... um, uh, but anyway, we can see him uttering lines like the uh, lines from the book describing the food. He always hops and skips when he, uh, uh, when he moves like that. Goldberry... Goldberry's not here at night, either. Here's the, uh, the bowls full of lilies about her feet. This is where she normally sits. As we will see next week when we meet her, I love Tom Bombadil and Goldberry's uh, china set. The, the 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 their sort of green china here. I love how the the, the, the plates and bowls look kind of like uh, kind of like lilies. Yeah. Um, so she's outside at night. Let's go, I think we can meet her in her uh, in her natural habitat. Is she around in the back of the house? I didn't see her back there. Oh, she she's at her spring, right? Okay. So let's let's go to Goldberry Spring. Um, it's a bit of a hike from here, isn't it? We gotta go out down here to down the way that I was accidentally heading before, right? We have to come down here and to the right. Let's go find Goldberry. She's up here, isn't she? Yeah. Isn't this the Goldberry's pool? No, this is the other. This is an ominous pool. Where's Goldberry's pool? Let's see, where are you, Ethelon? I will follow you. It's been a long time since I've gotten there. Oh, is it up there? Is that the one up in there in the corner? I think it is. Alright, so we have to go up this way, right? Okay. I have to go up up and around the corner. Right, right, right. Oh, she's also outside the house? That's okay. I want to find her spring anyway. I want to find her spring, and then by the time we find her spring and come back to the house, it'll uh, be daytime, and she'll be inside again, I think. All right, here we go. Goldberry Spring with a a a Tom Bombadil-like bridge, right? Just a log lying across it so you can cross just like on Tom Bombadil's path. And then there's Goldberry. Surrounded by water lilies, right? Her lovely green dress and her blonde hair. Except her girdle isn't silver. Well, that's okay. How tall is she? Is she taller than me? No, she's not taller than me. So she's human size. Okay. So I think this is the pool where she originally... Uh, try to drown Tom Bombadil in their touching how we met story. Um, I like that you can come and find Goldberry next to the pool, and, and it is as you can see, not the very easiest place in the Old Forest to find. Not the hardest, but not the very easiest either. Um, so it's nice to kind of go uh, you know, sort of find the secret ways through the forest to the spring where Goldberry can be found. Um, but, uh, cool. Yeah, so um, it's that th- her t- trying to drown Tom Bombadil is not in the book. Uh, it's not mentioned in the book. It's in the poem. It's in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, she reaches up and uh, grabs him and drags him into the water, which makes all kinds of sense. I mean, it's like the kind of thing you would expect a river daughter to do. Um, it puts her in the... Co- Let's go back to the house. And, uh... Because it's, it's coming up on dawn now. And then maybe we can find her inside again. As they find her in the book. I mean, they meet her at night time, of course. But, um... They do meet her hanging out inside during the day, too. Um... Okay. Anyway, um, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, the drowning. So um, okay, yeah, we want to go not down that way. We want to go south here. Um, so okay, uh,
0: just just a reminder: yeah. not all of our uh, participants are mounted. Right. So some of our littles don't have a mount yet.
1: So let's not right. leave them behind. Yeah. No, I'm staying on foot, and we don't want to leave them to the Mercies of the
0: uh, And then force. the little just found his mount, so never
1: mind. Okay, all right, no problem. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, in the uh, Goldberry, originally in the um, in the poem, that like that little habit that she has of um, finding a guy sitting next to her pool and pulling him into the water and attempting to drown him is just what water spirits do. There are lots of English fairy tales and folk tales um, about uh, female spirits that live in rivers um, and are very famous for drowning children. Jenny Greenteeth, for instance, is probably the most famous uh, one of these. Um, And uh, uh, Goldberry is clearly in that... Mode. She's clearly one of that kind of spirit, um, who uh, uh, lives in rivers and is at least reputed to drown. Uh, uh... Oh, it must be daytime. Tom's outside now. So many visitors are calling. Yes, it's a busy day at Tom Bombadil's house, and of course everyone is glad to see that he has yellow boots and a blue jacket and a really fun hat and a blue feather in his hat um and his height is good right he is uh, a tweener right He's quite short compared to a human, but he's tall for a hobbit. He doesn't really fit in either race, right? Uh, so that um, makes all kinds of sense. Um, yeah, nice. And he's got his blue feather. Cool. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Anyway, so Goldberry, uh, uh, there's those those stories about drowning children and stuff quite quite popular not necessarily true of goldberry herself but again when she sees tom and pulls him in kind of jokingly right um the uh they, they seem to be kind of having fun um he tells her to go i mean she is a threat like old man willow and the barrow whites and the badgers um but um but she um you know, he t- and he sends her off to sleep like the others, but then decides that he th- thinks she's cute and goes back and proposes uh, later on. Um, it's a charming story in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, yeah, cool. All right, let's uh, go back, because I think if Tom's outside, Goldberry must be in. Yes, there she is, standing among her lilies. That's great. Okay. And we didn't see the... I didn't see the back room. <laughs> I love... Oh, there's a bowl of lily pads in here, too. Right? See, so you, you see how... Like, when you see their... Their crockery, right? Their china set... Actually full of lily pads there... It looks totally natural, right? And, and you, you can sort of see there. That's really what it was designed for. Right? Having food and drink on it is sort of secondary... Okay, that's the pantry. Okay, white bread. Check. Uh, yellow butter. Uh huh. Cheese. All right? We got some cheese there. A very glowy candle. Um, yellow cream. Uh, fresh berries. Okay. I don't know what that is. Next to the white bread. And that's yes, yeah, the cheese, it's the white bread, the butter, uh, or the green herbs over here, presumably. More lilies, yeah. Um. Yeah, Tony. I also suspect that the crockery was they they got that on their wedding day. It was probably a gift from uh, from the mother-in-law from the uh, river woman, right? Oh, honeycomb. Of course, Steve. Obviously. Yes. Yellow cream, honeycomb, white bread and butter. Uh, though there's the white cream, right? Okay, white cream, honeycomb. Yeah, there you go. The cream, butter, honeycomb. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Of course, honeycomb. How could I have overlooked the honeycomb? But that's absolutely what that is back there, right? Right, absolutely. Um, okay. Where did the hobbits sleep? Can we get to the hobbits' room? We have to go upstairs, right? Yeah, up here. Can we get in? It's, it's not. Yeah, we can't get in. Door. Yeah, that's not right. I, that's, I didn't think so. But this is where the hobbits would have slept inside okay all right cool and so here's the fireplace where they would have said now what's up with the face on the mantle that's really weird i don't know is the fireplace singing along with them there Oh, and there's lots of green herbs hanging from the ceiling there, so that's good. Yeah, I don't get that mantelpiece at all. Is it representing the wind, Inherial asks? Maybe. Yeah, Druid's Fire was just thinking the same thing. Maybe. Maybe it represents the wind. It does look like a face blowing, right? So it could be. Looks rather out of place, as decorations in this house go and i i really like the the tree motif there in that you know with the with the light shining through it i think that's cool i'm not sure it's totally fitting cuz again it it gives the whole house a kind of overgrown feel which is kind of what we might expect but not at all what's described yeah huh. Okay. All right. Well, I'm keeping everybody pretty wait. We should end here, and what better place to end than happily here in the House of Tom Bombadil? Um, we can, of course, continue on to the Barrow Downs. That's not going to be for some time. We have a little while here to spend. We have an entire chapter to spend in the House of Tom Bombadil, uh, and we know how long it takes us to get through a chapter, so... um uh, so thanks everybody for joining us here. Um, we will uh, We will continue next week, looking forward to Chapter seven, learning more about Tom Bombadil and about Goldberry. Uh, and uh, and then we will continue our explorations as well. We ended at Fornost up in the north, so we'll we'll explore around a little bit more, I think, before we come back and look at the Barrow Downs. Thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, and I appreciate your coming along. Great turnout here on Gladden tonight. Thanks again, Lily Rose, to you and your kin uh, for joining, uh, for hosting us here. Uh, really appreciate that. Where are you? There you are. There you go. Yes. Yes. So, yes. So, thanks to Lily Rose and the Rangers of the West for hosting us, as always, here on Gladden. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.